we're now into the green season, the longest season of the church year, the Sundays after Pentecost, or uh, as we refer to them often mostly as the Sundays in ordinary time. And this season has a, a multi-purpose. Uh, one of them is to um, focus on the nature, the cost, the ways, and the means of Christian discipleship. And the other one is to uh, use the season as a time for some form of instruction. You know, in the Anglican Church, um, the sermon has been considered for a long time a means of spiritual direction. And it has also been uh, the location for some uh, a sort of didactic purpose to talk about some of the deep things of Christian faith and belief or even more prosaic things. So this Sunday, I'm going to talk to you a bit about the origin of the lectionary as we now have it and what the rationale behind it is. Um, I think there's still a book awaiting somebody who can uh, give, it, give you either like a commentary or something on why these readings are used on these Sundays. Um, but I'm going to attempt to tell you about the three-year cycle, the rationale behind that, and what year C, which is what we're in now, uh, what the biblical books are that will be that are the focus of the green season after we've moved out of Eastertide and and Pentecost. For about 35 years now, we have had a lectionary in the Episcopal Church and the other mainline churches that is a three-year lectionary, which means that uh, we have a cycle of readings A, B, and C. Uh, the former prayer book in, in our tradition had a one-year cycle, and so did many of the others. The Roman Catholics uh, in the P and Missal had the same readings year after year, and we had the same readings year after year. And in fact, in the Book of Common Prayer, they were printed so that you could read them. You know, they were in the, in the prayer book. You could read the same readings. And not only did that get a little bit tiresome and a little bit laborious for the preacher, it also uh, caused... Uh, a, a less opportunity to read uh, a lot of the Bible. You know, today, if you are an Episcopalian who's very observant, if you came to church every Sunday and you read morning and evening prayer through the week, by the end of the year, you'd read about 85% of the Bible, maybe 90%. So there's a lot of Bible. And uh, for a church that's often accused of not being biblical, uh, I, sus I suspect that uh, we do read and, and, and the, interact with the, the biblical text uh, on many levels for a long time. So what, we, what uh, was decided is that now we, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or more, agreed in a more ecumenical spirit to uh, use the revised common lectionary rather than the Episcopal lectionary. The Episcopal lectionary agreed with uh, the re revised common lectionary uh, a fair amount. Uh, the Roman Catholic lectionary and the Episcopal lectionary are about 85% the same. And uh, now it's not quite that amount because we have the revised common lectionary, which Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Ro some Roman Catholics, and uh, others read in, in on Sunday. Uh, it was a major uh, Victory, I think, that some of the Protestant churches for whom this was not considered a good plan to have any kind of a lectionary. Boy, am I glad I'm not a pastor in one of those churches. I'd have to come up with a biblical text, you know, like my friend Alan Farabee. I told you this story many times. 
uh, taught this class. He was a Methodist minister and came to my seminary to be Anglicanized. <laughs> and so he was there and he taught this sort of an elective that you could take from him called biblical preaching. And we had this contest that we uh, would engage in where somebody just out of the blue in the middle of the class would point to somebody and um, s say a word that you had to figure out a biblical text to preach, to preach about it. So one day, Cal Gervin was sitting next to me, and all of a sudden he stood up and he pointed to Rod Moore and he said, constipation. <laughs> and Rod got up and he said, my text this morning is... And Moses took two tablets in the wilderness. <laughs> so sometimes, if you think on your feet fast, right, you can do it. Uh, one of the other things we've done now with the Revised Common Lectionary, and I noticed this year it's shown uh, in certain online uh, sources for the lectionary, two tracks. And what that means is uh, we're reading tr the track one now, and it is uh, arranged so that the readings don't necessarily agree with one another. So the Old Testament reading and the epistle and the gospel, uh, neither of them particularly relate. I'm going to claim today that they do in one particular case. And then the track two is that the old pattern, which in the Episcopal Church and others, the Old Testament reading had some thematic uh, relationship to the gospel. Um, the other benefit of the lectionary on a three-year cycle was is that when uh, the liturgical renewal occurred in the Western churches, we realized it was important to read more of the Hebrew Bible and the liturgy than we have. You, we read the Hebrew Bible uh, in, in the office in morning prayer and evening prayer, but not at the Eucharistic uh, liturgy. And so now we read more of the Hebrew Bible uh, which I think is, is, a, is a plus. So in year C, here's how it works. Year A, the gospel that's the main gospel that's read is Matthew. Year B, the main gospel is Mark. And year C, the main gospel is Luke. And in all three years, those uh, gospel readings are supplemented at times of the year by John's gospel. So that's how John gets inserted in all three years in in uh, some form, both in the green seasons and in the uh, great days and seasons, we, we hear from John. And the Old Testament reading that, readings that we're going to focus on as we get into the green season are the prophets in year C. So we'll hear a lot uh, for the next several weeks about Elijah and Elisha, like we did this morning. And then we'll go to Jeremiah and we'll read some of the lesser prophets as we move towards Advent. And the epistles, this cycle, are going to focus on Galatians for the next five weeks. And we're going to focus on Colossians. And we're going to have a little bit of Hebrews uh, in year C. So that's sort of the focus uh, of year C. So there's some form of, of continuity, and we can understand that. Uh, so we're reading the cycle where there is allegedly no thematic relationship to the readings. They sort of appear neat or poodle along on their own uh, system, so you're reading it continuously. So I'm kind of happy that we're reading about, we're reading Galatians for the next five weeks because I've been reading a lot about Galatians, and I'm very interested in this whole thing because it has to do with, uh, this is the most 
polemical, if you know what I mean, of all of, the, of Paul's writings. In other words, controversial or argumentative. He's in, the, in this epistle uh, making a case both for the authenticity of his, the revelation he received, but also being very clear about how uh, we are right-wise with God through the works of Jesus Christ, the importance of accepting or believing in Christ, and how we understand what that means and participate in uh, the life of Christ as we live as Christian people. So today, from Galatians, Paul uh, is writing the introduction, you know, to the church in Galatia, grace to you, and so forth. But this is the coldest greeting that I have read in any of the epistles, because he does not praise the Galatians. He merely does the usual epistolary greeting. But he doesn't say, I'm so happy, like he does with the Philippians, you have been so fit, and yada, yada, yada. No. He says who he is and why he's writing this letter that he's astounded that uh, they're already listening to uh, uh, people who are promulgating a false gospel. And he's going to begin now his argument about what he thinks is the case. So this is one of the uh, epistles that, about which there's been a lot of scholarship written with regard to the way in which people have understood the keeping of the law and the nature of Judaism in Paul's time and subsequent to this. Because, you know, I've been in a little bit of the, the Jewish-Christian dialogue, and one of the things I got from it was that there are a lot of Jews who were, very, who were astounded uh, that people have interpreted Paul the way they have. Because his comments about the law, in their view, are completely wrong. And not Paul's comments, but the people who've interpreted them, like Martin Luther. And Martin Luther has been an enormously influential uh, interpreter of Paul, and those Lutheran biblical scholars are the ones who have advanced the views that now have um, received an enormous amount of attention uh, in scholarship in this way. So the great question is, Paul is writing, and he's first of all establishing his bona fides. He's telling them where he has received this re re revelation directly from Jesus Christ, and he's concerned about uh, how people are now being uh, credulous with regard to the people who've come in in his absence and told them that this is how they have to, what they have to do to be true Christians. The reason I'm belaboring this epistle in today's gospel is these are two readings about who's in. And how do you get in? And how do you stay in? So what Paul is talking about today, we'll talk about who he's, who he's uh, writing to or speaking of when he writes to the Galatians. But first, here are the two things. When I was in seminary, here's what I was taught about Galatians. Galatians was written to the churches in Galatia that are in, no in the north, in Turkey. They were written in the middle of Paul's ministry, after the council in Jerusalem. So they, they are probably written, some, written in that view sometime in the 50s A.D. And since then, there has been an enormous amount of uh, work done on this, and there is a view that is held now by many that this was written early in Paul's career, 
to the churches in South Galatia prior to the council in Jerusalem. Council in Jerusalem is in the book of Acts where Paul goes to, to argue about who's in and who's out with the, with the apostles <coughs> in Jerusalem who were Jewish Christians. And so he's having an argument about this, and if you read it, and I think it's Acts 15, you'll read what the conclusion was they came to. What, you go back and you tell your people, this is what we in the Council of Jerusalem think, you, think should be done. So if you have the, the early, the, the, except the early view, which I do, is that Paul was doing this before then, and he was, uh, here's who he was talking with. Also, when I was in seminary, the group of people that came into North Galatia were called Judaizers. And that's apparently not so because the Judaizers are Gentiles who want to be Jews. And so they have not gone the whole way, but they have felt that they needed to be more Jewish. And who has really come into Galatia that's being described today are people who are Jewish Christians who have come in and said, you have not a complete gospel. And what you need to do is to go the full way. So that means men have to be circumcised, you have to keep the, the dietary laws, and you must keep the Sabbath. If not, your Christianity is inauthentic. It's not the real thing. You're not in and one of the things that people have discovered is that in Judaism, and in the Judaism in Paul's day, you did not keep the law to get in. You kept the law to stay in as an act of gratitude for being a member of the covenant. So this is not some onerous undertaking that people did. It was done from the, the heart and the keeping of the law in that sense is understood as staying in. So what's Paul saying? He's saying this. You don't have to keep the law to get in. You don't have to keep the law to stay in. You have to believe in Christ and by virtue of that participate in the life of the community and to understand how you in some way fit into God's plan for the cosmos as a person of the new covenant. And that this message is for you. It isn't just for the old people of the covenant. So Paul is today speaking about these people who have come in and said, well, you've got to keep the whole law and you've got to now sign on and you have to do all of these things. And he calls that a false gospel that if you do that, you'll be going backwards and not forwards because you're already in. What do Jews have to do to get in and stay in? Believe in Christ. If they want to keep the law and are used to keeping the law because of the, being part of that great tradition, but that's not what gets you in or keeps you in. Belief in Christ does. Participation in Christ. So we're going to continue this theme uh, in the next several weeks because he's going to take up certain things that have been uh, very much part of Christianity, certainly for, for all time, but since uh, 1517, big time for some of these things. So we have to understand maybe what they mean in a, a deeper and fuller sense. So this letter 
very well may have been, there's a book, a, brand, a fairly new book in the last 10 years written by a biblical scholar who's an archaeologist. And by virtue of the archaeological work that he's done, he said the, this letter was written to the South Galatians in, in the beginning of Paul's career. There's no doubt about it. You know, I don't know whether he's one voice crying in the wilderness, but apparently he has assembled a substantial amount of evidence to support that from archaeology uh, as well. So stay continued. But remember, uh, being in is important, and God's work through Christ brings everybody in, and that the message is not just for the people of the covenant, but for the Gentiles as well. And the Gentiles shouldn't get worried or nervous if they're not keeping the law. Because today we have an example of the kind of uh, way that was done during the time of Jesus. And it's the story of the healing of the centurion's slave in Luke's gospel. So the story is, is that some Jewish elders come to Jesus and say, we, we know a man who is a, a, a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. And he has a slave who is sick and dying. And this man is a very good man. And uh, we would like you to go and heal him. And they speak very highly of him and, and of the centurion. And they say this man is a great supporter. He built the synagogue in Capernaum. And he, this would, th we believe that you, you should do this. Now, here's the first thing. Jesus is on his way to do something that a pious Jew would not do, and that is go into somebody's house who is a Gentile. You don't do that. So he's on his way to go, and he's stopped uh, by the centurion's minions and said, don't, you know, the centurion says, don't come into my house. Uh, I'm a nobody but I just speak the word and I know my, my servant will be healed. He fulfills all of the requirements, the centurion, of being what was known then as a proselyte, which was a Gentile who was extremely attracted to Judaism and its moral and ethical outlook. And uh, many of the things that they did in their praying, they usually hung around the door, you know, that kind of thing. But they didn't go the whole way. They didn't convert. The men didn't get circumcised. They didn't keep the dietary laws. They didn't do those things. But they were very, very, uh, had a very positive view of Judaism and were supporters of uh, the, that life. And many of them were, were highly thought of. And here's the guy who, it, it, one of these people. Now, we're, we're, Paul predates this. But in the gospel, we have some support from the Savior uh, being willing to extend in this regard towards the Gentiles, which for Luke gives him the idea that Jesus would have been favorable to the mission to the Gentiles. This gospel is a gospel to the Gentiles. Luke himself is a Gentile. But Luke himself is found himself in his own church community, if we can say that. S something similar to Matthew, and that is there are more Gentiles in the church than there are Jews. So how are we going to make sense of what it is that's happening here? Because not only are we separated in geography, Jews in the diaspora and Jews near Jerusalem, 
and separated in maybe uh, doctrinal views were now separated generationally. So there needs to be some way of continuing to reach out uh, to, to Gentiles because that seems to be where this message is being very readily listened to and acted upon. You know, in a way, that's sort of the, the boat that we're in now in, in uh, organized Christianity in, in the West, certainly in the United States, when a lot of people don't know from maybe about Christianity. It isn't that they left. There are plenty of those. But it's like they've never been in. They don't know. And what they hear are all the things in the media about how we've, we've been blowing it one time after another for a long, long time. So how generationally do we repair the, the distance? And one of the ways is, I think, uh, inclusion. And what we see in the reading today. This reading, this passage will be repeated in the book of Acts with, with Cornelius and his family who get converted by the generation after the Christ event. And it is a commercial message from Luke, who wrote Acts, Volume 2, that this is for everybody, and that we see it here, and that Cornelius found it compelling. So I guess this week the assignment would be to think about um, who this is for, to think about who's in and who's out, and to labor for there not to be that con continuous conversation about who's in and who's out. Here's the conclusion Luke came to. Luke came to the conclusion that God is not a God of either or, but a God of both and. And I think that's so hard for people uh, to live in. The idea, have you ever been in a situation in your life where you felt yes and no at the same time? You know how that feels. And I think in the missionary work of the church, that's often a situation they found themselves in from the jump. So maybe we should ask God to help us live in the midst of yes and no at the same time and always labor towards getting people and keeping people in rather than giving them reasons for being out. Amen. <laughs>